Well, almost one year ago, we started the Faculty Chronicles podcast at Merida College with Dr. Mark Schaefer, and we, and we discussed the start of the war in Ukraine and the impact it could potentially have on the world. Now we are pleased to welcome Dr. Schaefer back, a professor of political science at Merida College, to join us once again to talk about what has transpired over the past year in this war and maybe ask him a few predictions, some questions, some just some fun things going on here. I am your host, Tom Perry, Merida College's Vice President for Communication and Brand Management, and thank you to everyone who has helped make Faculty Chronicles successful over the past 12 months. Before we get to the questions, let me first welcome Dr. Schaefer to today's podcast. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, let's go. again, one year ago, you know, almost one year ago, we were sitting here almost the day uh, discussing the start of the war in Ukraine. And I remember you were, um, I don't want to say pessimistic, but there was concern, you know, as we as we talked about this. Uh, and like so many other, what I'll say, very smart people had some serious concerns about the war and what it would mean to the people of Ukraine and what it would mean to the world and especially the democratic world. Uh, so what has been more surprising uh, to you, the resilience of the Ukrainian people? Or, I hate to say, but the ineptitude of the Russian military. I mean, this has gone on for a year. And maybe I'm, and again, correct me if I'm wrong in saying that. Well, I mean, the Ukrainian people have fought exceedingly well, admirably. They've done well across all levels, political leadership, military leadership, um, civilian just understanding of their position and willingness to kind of take up the fight. Um, I'd say, I mean, that's... I was pleasantly surprised, and I didn't expect that Ukraine would just fold, but I expected that it would just be an impossible fight for them. Um, it's pleasantly surprising that Ukraine is still fighting and fighting so strong. Um, I would say I'm more surprised about the inept Russian military. Um, Russia has performed terribly in, in this conflict. Um, right now, they're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 60,000 to 100,000 battlefield fatalities, which is an enormous number for a Russian military. Um, add on to that another 100,000 battlefield injuries. Um, they've had to draw up conscripts, which they had promised that they would not. And they've also had to use the Wagner mercenary group to basically they're leveraging prisoners in Russian prisons to fight on the front lines in Ukraine. And so Russian prisoners are being given the opportunity to sign on with the Wagner group to fight for six months. And if they don't drop their weapons and they continue fighting and, and they stay in the fight, they can have their um, prison sentences wiped clean. That's just, for the Russian military, that's just unheard of. Um, so I would say my biggest surprise would be how Russia has, how poorly they have performed. So what has that done on the world stage as far as evaluating, the again, looking at the Russian military and how that might impact the way we have viewed them as being a player in this sort of game of, of, of chess, I guess, or whatever, the, or I always go back to the game of risk that we would play as kids. When you look at Russia and think, um, you know, how has that changed, but also how has it changed the or impacted the support that obviously places like the U.S. and others have helped Ukraine even more as, like, as they see an opportunity to maybe change the sort of, again, the world script on how we view this? So from a, a global perspective, the big question that we need to be asking today is whether or not China is going to begin to give offensive military hardware to Russia. And that's the thing that U.S. intelligence is basically telling the world that China is considering this now. Um, 
why they're considering this now is Russia is entering the stage where they can basically make this a war of attrition and a war that Ukraine would not be able to dislodge Russian forces from the eastern portion of Ukraine. At the same time, the United States and its NATO allies have performed exceedingly well in basically staying unified, staying unified in how well they fund the Ukrainians, how much arms they send to Ukraine, in the sanctions protocols that they've set up to counter the Russian threat, and in their capacity to basically take in Ukrainian citizens as refugees. Uh, to put a number to it, the U.S. has sent $26.5 billion of military and economic assistance to Ukraine since the war began. Uh, Sweden and Finland, which are two members, two Two European states that are not members of NATO are now on the cusp of basically joining NATO, making NATO arguably stronger. Um, but at the same time, if this conflict goes on and stretches on for another year or two years, Russia is really looking at the capacity to, to have what this would be called a frozen conflict, where they would have their troops on Ukrainian soil and Ukraine and the West not really able to dislodge them. Um, so I think Russia's kind of like long-term aims are to make that permanent and to basically set their foot on Ukrainian soil and stay there, make a land bridge to Crimea. And Ukraine sees the next year as basically the year that they have to try to make a big push to remove Russia from its soil. That's also why you're going to see over the next, you know, two to three months, them asking for more and more offensive weapons from the West, from the United States. You can hear that in Zelensky's speeches and in his requests, he's asking now for F-16s. He's asking for more offensive weapons. He's asking for more tanks and armament. He's asking for basically things not to defend Ukraine, but weapons that can push the Russians out. Because this is really kind of like... The next year to 18 months is really, you know, that's it for Ukraine. They either get Russia out or this becomes a war of attrition. And in a war of attrition, the larger body is going to win. That would make it Russia's win. You talked a little about Zelensky there, and I'm just curious. Um, you know, honestly, 13, 14 months ago, I would say most people didn't even know, who, you know, know his name and who he was. What would you say about his leadership in this and what he's been able to do um, to, again, uh, to to make Ukraine relevant in this and not not be one of those where it was six months and done. He has become kind of like the penultimate battlefield leader. So coming from somebody who had very little, you know, political experience to now all of a sudden being the, the face of a nation and the face of, of a fight against aggression. Uh, he's played this role exceedingly well. Uh, he has also adapted himself well to both the world stage and to dealing with problems at home. So on the world stage, he's made himself almost kind of like a, a battlefield like moniker and figure in his green fatigues and things like that, that he's recognizable, that everyone understands and sees that he's fighting this struggle. World leaders respect him. They want to be seen with him. Joe Biden wanted to basically travel to Ukraine to basically be there. Um, He's also taken the big hard steps in Ukraine to deal with corruption. And this is one of the kind of like the West and NATO and the U.S.'s kind of big worries about sending massive amounts of military assistance to Ukraine is they have had a government that has had corruption problems. So while dealing with threats from Russia and dealing with worries about NATO and European and American support, he has cut members from his own government, which is a really strong move for somebody who basically needs all hands on deck. He's busy pushing out corrupt officials. And that's not to say that he's rooted out all corruption, but you know, typically in times of warfare, that's when corruption is going to go up in almost any country, 
right? Because you're going to have all this money flowing into a military. Corruption will just go up. So he is doing the hard work to basically diminish corruption in Ukraine, even while fighting is going on. So let's look at the flip side of it. His counterpart in Putin and and he controls the media in Russia. So he gets to he, he gets to control the narrative and what's being said. But, you know, it feels like, you know, you see more and more stories talking about the people of Russia are starting to realize if you see, if you have 100,000 dead and 100,000 have been injured, they at least see this. Um, is that tide turning against him? Could you see his time as the person in charge coming to an end sooner rather than later? I would really probably look at Putin's time in Russia and his future in Russia with two distinct lenses. So I'll give you the kind of public opinion point of view. Um, Public opinion support for the war within Russia is largely supportive. Uh, Many Russians who were adamant, adamant opposition forces to this war have left or have been silenced by the regime. Um, Russian the Russian population gets most of their news and most of the information from state media sources. So they're getting this highly nationalized view. Um, also within Russia, the biggest push that Putin is getting from his population is actually from the right. So the, the conservative pro-Russian nationalist side of Russia is the one that's pushing him to be more aggressive and more assertive. A lot of the more recent civilian losses for the Ukrainians are really because Russian nationalists have demanded that Putin basically take the gloves off and to begin to target civilian centers again. He had not been doing that, recognizing that this was pain, having so much problems with Europeans. Um, so he's getting pushed to become more and more assertive in this conflict. Um, the other side, though, I would kind of give you from an intelligence perspective. From an intelligence perspective, it's very, the CIA or British intelligence or whomever, they rarely know exactly when a coup is going to happen because if we knew that a coup was going to happen in Moscow, Putin would know that a coup was going to happen in Moscow and he would be able to prevent that coup. Um, so there are no signs right now that there is any chance of Putin basically being overthrown within Russia. But that's not to say that tomorrow morning we couldn't all wake up and be pleasantly surprised, but that's just because that's the nature of intelligence analysis. It's just so hard to know actually what's going to happen inside a country that specifically. So, but if we're just looking at the broad picture, this war within Russia is largely popular, but that's because of the information that they're consuming and the regime's place in their life. You, you've kind of touched on this, but I want to go back to NATO and the and the the role it plays. And and you talked about the importance of the next twelve to eighteen months. What will NATO's role be in 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 trying to assure what the result that they want in helping Ukraine? What what is the NATO role in this over the next twelve to eighteen months? NATO's role in this is going to be how much are they willing to aid and assist Ukraine? How much are they willing to put? increasingly offensive weapons as opposed to defensive weapons on the battlefield within Ukraine. For the first months of this battle, it was all about how do we get Ukrainians, basically Soviet and Russian era weapons that they can use, that they can use quickly and easily. Um, Now, though, it's all about, well, what types of really, really high quality Western weapons can we put in the battlefield without feeling that we're going to provoke a larger Russian response. So the way I think about it with our students here on campus is this is as though NATO is watching a chess game. And so 
On one side of the chessboard is the Ukrainians, on the other side of the chessboard is the Russians. The Russians have a big gun that can be pointed at Ukraine, it can be pointed at NATO, and NATO is sitting there trying to coach and arm the Ukrainians in this chess match as best they can. They're trying to gauge how much can they give without Russia targeting anybody outside of the chess match. And that's kind of where we sit right now. There's been some criticism of the Biden administration um, from both sides, one saying that they haven't given enough and one side saying that they have given too much. Um, from the side that's saying that they haven't given enough, that's probably not giving the Biden administration and NATO credit for the fact that they are gauging what they give to the Ukrainians based upon what they see the Russian actions to be that follow. And so we don't want to give so much offensive weaponry that this basically becomes a wider conflict. And, but we're still trying to keep Ukraine in the game, and we still want to make sure that they have the capacity to, to push Russian forces out of Ukraine. From the side inside the U.S., and there are NATO member states that have the same public opinion that's starting to say that, you know, numbers like $26.5 billion is too much. That argument, in my perspective, actually feeds Russian resolve because they believe that they can keep this into a, a war of attrition and that eventually NATO and American support for the conflict will dry up and that Russia can just have that territory because the Ukrainians will be forced to give up. And that is the case. Absent Western munitions, this fight stops. Ukraine would have to change its whole battlefield posture, would have to change any type of bargaining position if, if a peace treaty and peace negotiations were to come up. They would have to change all of that. But the Biden administration is trying to say, we are going to be there with Ukraine until the end. And that is because they want to set this footing that, no, Russia needs to basically begin backing down. They need to begin to capitulate. And that's really where the Biden administration is leveraging those F-16s and leveraging offensive air power. Because if those type of weaponry find their way to Ukrainian hands, Russian capacity to hold on to territory will be greatly diminished. But that also has the potential of widening the war. And now you have, you know, American-made planes flying over, over Ukraine and potentially into Russia. They're not going to have American pilots, but it would still be a difficult position for the U.S. Well, you brought up one thing that I always end uh, the podcast with as I talk to faculty members every time, and that's getting it back in the classroom. It's a year later. Is this still a, a topic that students want to talk about? Is it something that you regularly talk about? What is it like in the classroom uh, when you talk about this conflict? Well, a year ago, I was teaching our Russia and Eastern Europe class. And so obviously, it was a, it was a constant presence in my teaching. Um, and students were constantly paying attention to it because they had intel briefs that were due on their kind of target states in you know, Eastern Europe or Russia. Um, but this semester or this past semester, it's been something that I'm always addressing with students. But you can see that the salience, and for those of you all that are political science alums, you're like, holy crap, you used the word. I did. I still can't spell it. So the salience of this war in American ears is diminishing. People aren't paying as much attention to it. And that's because they're just pleasantly surprised and happy that Ukraine is doing so well. But that's also why Zelensky shows up in his green fatigues everywhere he can to tell everybody we're still at war. We're still losing people. Right. So the Ukrainians have had on estimate about 13,000 battlefield deaths. They've had 7,000 civilian fatalities, including 400 children in this conflict. And then millions of Ukrainians, mainly women and children, find themselves out of their home country and into 
Europe. So this is obviously a big deal. It's just up to us to kind of stay engaged with it and understand that this is still an ongoing fight and that unity amongst the West and unity amongst NATO members is vital for Ukrainian stability. And to also remember that there is a self-interest in this for the United States. The Russians started this war. They started this war to gain power. We can help minimize and decrease Russian power in our ability to aid the Ukrainians, which can pay a benefit for the Ukrainians, but for self-interested, can also play a benefit for us. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode of Faculty Chronicles, and thank you to Dr. Schaefer for being our first return guest and for once again sharing his expertise regarding the war in Ukraine. If you'd like to learn more about Marietta College, please visit www.marietta.edu.